Well, a rival host called him a chipmunk on that just breeds Julian. I could see that accusation. All right, according to that clock, uh, our class is over, but I think we're supposed to start. So that's what we're going to do. Instead of concluding class, we'll begin class. And I'm so grateful uh, that you guys came back. You know, I mean, that's always the nerve wracking thing. You show up one day and there's people, and you show up the next time and nobody came back. Uh, I'm learning some new things too. I drove a different way here instead of going down the closed way. Um, the one way, the wrong way. I, I came the right way and uh, just stayed on 75 all the way until uh, I could get here. And so that, that worked out well. Let's begin with a word of prayer and then we'll jump right back into the course notes from last time. So if you weren't here last time, uh, I apologize because I don't have the course notes from last time. But we're just going to be dealing with a little section of that last notes and then we'll jump right into the, what was handed out for today. So let's go ahead and uh, go to the Lord together. And then we'll jump into the notes. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity we've been given to look into your word, to know you more because of it. These are your words. Your scriptures tell us that your words are like a sword that penetrates even into the depths of our heart, reveals the thoughts and intents that are, that are there, and helps us to see even things that we cannot on our own naturally see. So we thank you for that. Aid us, we ask this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, you'll have to forgive the sticker that I have on my, <laughs> my computer here. Uh, my, my daughter gave that to me, and then I showed my wife, and she said, oh, how unprofessional. And then I left it on there. So apparently I'm unprofessional, and I'm sorry if that bothers you. All right. So we've been talking about uh, 1 Peter. If you have the notes from last time, I'm on occasion for writing. It's uh, page 6. And uh, we were dealing with why Peter wrote this letter. And the last... Yes, go ahead. Just real quick, there's a couple people that... Where is the one for today that was passed out? A couple people don't have it. Even though okay. The first Peter 115. No. Yes. Oh. All right. So I'm sorry. What's your name? John, all right. John is the guy. He's taking payment. And uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right, so we're talking about the occasion for writing. Uh, Peter explicitly tells us why he wrote. He said, I've written to you, and this comes from chapter 5, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. So stand firm in it. So Peter's message is one of endurance. The last time we were together, we talked about one of the reasons Peter was writing to this audience was because they were facing um, hostility, social hostility for embracing Christ. And we talked about the fact that they were in a community of people who, in order to honor Caesar, would offer sacrifices all their social customs, their holidays, everything surrounded the Caesar. But there's something about Christianity that keeps us from worshiping Caesar. Now, we can give him honor. In fact, First Peter's going to say, give him honor. But it's also going to imply that he's a mere mortal. And we're going to see that when we get into chapter 2. But because of that, there's social isolations, social problems that are beginning to develop as a result of that. And that's why one of the themes of this letter and one of the major things I want us to address is this idea of the, of the readers as foreigners and exiles. Foreigners and exiles. So if you look there in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, look in verse 1, he names the, author, he names the readers this. He says, I'm writing to God's elect exiles. Now, I don't know if there's a piece of chalk over here. It looks that way. All right. So he names them elect 
exiles. I've got to admit, it's been a long time since I've actually used chalk. All right. <laughs> but in any case, all right. So elect exiles. So this is the key word I want us to be thinking about right now. All right. We're going to talk about what it means to be elect uh, in just a little bit. But for right now, he addresses his readers and says, you are exiles. Uh, when, when we say the word exile, what comes to mind? Okay, foreigner. All right, so movement. So, the, so there's a sense in which uh, you're... Uh, you're not in your homeland. You're moving through some other homeland. Yeah, so you're foreign. Um, there's a sense, sense of social estrangement, which comes along with foreignness. What's that? Is it forced? Uh, yes. Uh, typically, it's forced. So you're, you're generally forced into exile. I want you to look in chapter 2 in verse 11. Because he adds to the idea of a foreigner, or I'm sorry, exile, with another term. In fact, one that was mentioned here as a synonym of that. And notice he says this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. So he's added a second layer to this. He says not only are we exiles, but we are indeed foreigners. All right, so we're foreigners and exiles. And foreigners adds uh, perhaps a little bit to that idea of exile, but it compounds it by simply saying, we're not at home here. So one of the key questions that's asked of the, past, of the book of 1 Peter is whether Peter is speaking of this literally or metaphorically. It's possible, if you remember last week as we were addressing the history of this, of this location, this Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey. The people there uh, were conquered by the Romans or they were taken over by the Romans. And one of the things that the Romans as well as the Greeks and everybody who was before them did is if you conquered a land, you generally took people from that land and you sent them somewhere else. And you took people from elsewhere and put them there. And this was just logic. Because if you left the people you just conquered all together in one spot, guess what they tended to do? Yeah, they tended to band back together. And, and there's, they already had a social unity. It was so much easier to remain together. So you would generally send them out. You would send them into exile. You would cast them away. So it's quite possible that Peter is writing actually to exile people who've been sent away from their homeland. One biblical scholar argues this. She says, why is Peter writing to people in Asia Minor when we don't know of Peter going to Asia Minor? And she says, well, it's, it may be that when Claudius expelled the Jews, you can read about that in the book of Acts. When Claudius expelled many of the Jews, that those Jews had to have gone somewhere. Where'd they go? Well, some might have gone to Asia Minor and Peter's writing to them. And that is certainly possible. I, however, think that the designation is intentionally spiritual. So whether, in fact, there is a literal designation or not, it could be, could not be, I don't know. I don't need to know that. But I, do say, I, I would say this, that there's no doubt in my mind that this is also a spiritual designation, that he's using this language of exile and foreigner to refer to God's people as those who are foreign to the world that they presently live in. They're exiled from their heavenly homeland for which they would long to be in, but right now presently are not. Now, why do I say that? If you Just keep your finger here. Turn with me way back to Genesis 23. Genesis 23. Genesis 23, verse 4. Uh, this is when Sarah has just died. So it's Abraham and Sarah. Sarah is Abraham's wife. And Sarah's just died. And he has to bury Sarah. But the problem is he doesn't own any land. So where is he going to bury her? Uh, so he decides that he needs to buy land so that he can have a real burial place for his wife. So then Abraham arose, this is verse 3 of chapter 23, 
from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am a foreigner and stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site so I can bury my dead. Guess what two words he used of himself there? Exile and foreigner. These are the exact same words. Now, maybe you're aware the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, New Testament in Greek. However, during the New Testament period, uh, even the Jews used the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament used the exact same words that Peter used here to refer to exile and foreigner. He says, I don't have land here because I'm an exile and a foreigner. And of course, he's in the promised land. This is the land God promised to him. But remember, God also said, you're not going to have it for 420 years. It's not yours yet. You will have it. So right now, he feels like an exile and a foreigner. He doesn't have land. This isn't his land. Turn with me over then to Psalm 23. Uh-oh, I'm on the wrong passage. Is it, uh... <laughs> I know why I put Psalm 23. I think about Psalm 23 all the time, but this is not the passage I'm looking for here. Um, let me see if it's 24.3. Oh, now I'm not going to be able to find it. I'm sorry, I put it down in here wrong. Excuse me, is it 37, Babylon? No, no, it's referring... Um, the exact same two words uh, that were used back in uh, Genesis are used here in the, book of he in, in the book of Psalms. You'll have to trust me, and next time I come together, I'll bring the, the passage to you. I could find it, but it's going to take me some time, and, and we should probably keep moving. But here's what that passage says. It's actually David speaking, and here's the oddity. David and those with him where are they? They're in the promised land, aren't they? Ah, look at this. Psalm 137. And what's the verse then? Yeah. One thirty-seven. that's not it. <laughs> hey, we're going to find this guy. <laughs> All right, I hear 39.12. Let me take a look at that. Yes, exactly. Yes, 39.12, there it is. Good job. <laughs> Almighty Google helped us out here, didn't it? <laughs> All right, that's even better than Google. All right. Um, 39.12. Now here's, so notice it says for the director of music for Juduth, these Old Testament names, I tell you. All right. From Juduthin, uh, a psalm of David. And here's what he says. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Do not be deaf to my weeping. I dwell with you as a foreigner and a stranger, as all my ancestors were. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because they're in the promised land. And yet, David here is saying that despite the fact that we're in the promised land, this is what you've given to us, we're still foreigners and strangers. Well, why would he say that? What's the, what's the real idea here? Well, turn with me to the book of Hebrews. And, then, and I know we're moving around a lot, but I think this establishes what's happening in this, in, in Peter, as we look at uh, the book of Hebrews, it, it helps us to see that this theme runs through the Old Testament and is in the New Testament as well. Hebrews chapter 11, you know Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith. It's the people of God in the Old Testament who have done uh, that which honored the Lord. But notice this it says in Hebrews eleven thirteen, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. All right, so 
And, and then it goes on, people who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. So here, here's the bottom line that you see from the Old Testament, the book of Genesis coming through Psalms into 1 Peter and into Hebrews. It's this idea that God's people are exiles in this world because this isn't our homeland. We're foreigners. And in many ways, we're weird, right? I mean, I, I'll, I'll admit that for myself. My daughters will certainly admit that for me. Um, <laughs> uh, we're, we're different. And, uh, you know, I think uh, what we're going to find in First Peter is that the world doesn't always like different because different reminds them of things they would rather forget. And, and I think that's where, where believers are. So I would say this, the book of First Peter then is a survival manual for how to live in a foreign world. Uh, there, are, there are books that are written for people who are coming from other cultures. Let's say somebody who's coming from, uh, you know, Japan and is going to live in the United States. And somebody writes a book to say, here are the, here are the things you're going to have to get used to. Because the people you're going to live among, they're weird. And the, they're going to think you're weird. And uh, so how are you going to navigate life? And I think that's what Peter's provided for us here, a navigation manual for living in this world in which we are foreigners and strangers. Uh, did somebody raise their hand over here? Okay. All right. It's a dangerous thing to scratch your nose, let me just say. Uh, you, you might be called on, all right? All right, so some theological emphases here we'll, we'll mention at the, at the end of, of this section, but I won't spend much time here because we'll see these as they develop in the, in the course, and I want to get to the next section here this evening. First, there's a theme on election that runs through the whole text. And you notice at the very beginning he tells us, uh, the readers are elect, exiles chosen to be exiles. God chose them for blessing. God chose them for gifting. God chose them for suffering. And so God's election does not merely surround God's good pleasure on their, in their behalf, but it also surrounds the fact that he's called them to suffer. And this is huge in the book of First Peter. Because if we think that our suffering is outside God's will, or if we think that somehow God is not sovereign over our suffering, uh, we will not make it. Second theme, suffering. Uh, 2.21, Peter says, uh, Jesus lived this life in order that you might follow in his footsteps. He suffered that we might follow in his footsteps and suffer likewise. Peter mentions that suffering is a universal Christian experience, one that we'll all face to differing degrees, and that suffering will be rewarded, and that it's only for a little while. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Holiness. Uh, another theme of the book is the necessity of holiness and God's holiness that we are to replicate. And then, as we mentioned a moment ago, this theme of elect exile, which we're going to develop right now, so I won't spend time on that. So where does Peter get his sources from? If you were to analyze the New Testament and ask the question, who is the most Old Testament-centered of the books of the New Testament, number one, by far, Almost every verse refers to the Old Testament is the book of Revelation. It almost never quotes it. But almost every verse, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you're saying, ah, I see where he got that from. But after that, uh, Hebrews is pretty high up there, but 1 Peter is probably second. Uh, Peter is often quoting the Old Testament, and I've included in those notes the various places in which he refers to the Old Testament but there's a second source of Peter's, uh, that, that Peter mines to great effect, and that is Jesus' words. And again, I think it's important for us to recognize that Peter does not generally quote Jesus. 
and he doesn't need to. Um, you know, if, if I were speaking to you and, and I began the class by saying, in the beginning, God, immediately all of you know, what, what am I doing? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm referring to scriptural passages, and you, and you might even be thinking of Genesis 1. You might be thinking of John 1. But you knew that I was quoting from scripture without me needing to say, now, wait a second, I'm about to quote the Bible to you, right? And the more familiar we are with a source document, and, and this could be like a movie that somebody has watched a lot of times, and you're among friends and you quote the movie, and nobody needs to say, hey, I'm about to quote this movie to you, you know, may the force be with you. Uh, you, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? And in the same way, Jesus' words were so combed over that they knew them, and that's how P Peter refers to them. So we're going to talk about those as we move along here as well. All right, that leads us to the course notes that sit in your lap, and that's where we want to jump in today. We're going to just cover the first five verses. Lord willing, we'll get to five verses. I'm looking at that clock. It, that clock goes fast, friends. It's, it's just moving. I don't understand. <laughs> All right, so let's read the text here. It says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctification of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. We're going to stop there for now. We'll look at those other verses in just a moment. But let's begin with the author. Of course, it indicates that Peter is an apostle. If you don't know what apostle means, it simply means a sent one. That's literally what the word means. Uh, apostello means I send. So it's, it's apostle, one who sent. And Peter was, Peter was one sent by the Lord. You remember... As he was fishing, the Lord came along and said, Peter, I will make you fishers of men, a fisherman of men. And that's exactly what Peter became. Now, Peter uses his own name here that was given to him because remember, Peter's name was not originally Peter. It was Cephas and, uh, or Simon. And uh, then he's given the name Cephas and Peter. Uh, Peter is the Greek form of Cephas, but it means rock. And Peter's going to capitalize on that in chapter 2. We're going to see that later. But this is the rock on which Jesus builds his church, or at least one of them. I think the apostles are uh, the foundation stones outside of Jesus, the cornerstone. The recipients of this book are elect exiles. Now, there are various ways you can put these, these terms uh, with each other. It could be because both of these are, uh, both of these are subjects, and they're just shoved next to each other. You are elect, you're exiles, and then you got to figure out. Okay, so are you a elect who are exiles? Are you exiles who are elect? And I'm convinced, as you can tell by the dash, is that I don't think Peter wants to emphasize either above the other. Instead, I think he wants to say this, you ought to look at your life, look at yourself as a complex. Um, we are creatures who on the one hand are chosen, chosen by God, blessed because chosen. On the other hand, exiles, rejected by the world chosen by God, rejected by the world. And is this not the very definition of Jesus <laughs> and we as we follow him? So I think what we're going to find, and this is what I'm going to argue as we work through the text, is that Peter is going to emphasize one of these two poles, these two elements of our identity. He's, that, that's really what he's giving us. He's giving us our identity. Who am I? Who are you? I'm an elect exile. I'm one who's chosen by God. And that brings incredible blessing. But because I'm chosen by God, 
because of that blessing, actually, it changes me. And that change that's been affected in my life makes me different from the world. And that makes me estranged from the world, an exile. So we are elect exiles. Uh, the recipients, uh, as they're exiles then, I think the, the idea here of exile, foreigner, uh, is, is quite, quite an analogy that uh, many people have faced. Uh, anybody here from a, another country and moved to the United States and experienced that? Uh, I know in my, uh, as I teach this, I, I'm teaching through this in uh, my Sunday school. I teach a Sunday school at my church. And there are a couple of people from Europe who've moved here. And so you think, well, Europe's a lot like us. Actually, it's not quite. <laughs> There's quite a bit of difference. And uh, especially one of the ladies is from Eastern Europe. Actually, two of them are. And uh, <clears throat> they talk about how difficult it is to be a foreigner uh, because everything's just different. And uh, it's not merely that everything's different and it's hard to adjust, but it's also that people look at you differently. Uh, treat you differently. And that's not always what you want, right? It, that's a hard thing. So I think there's a lot to mine from this idea that we are exiles and foreigners, and we're going to try and do that as we develop uh, the class. Now, uh, we noted that they're elect, they're exiles. We'll talk more about that election in just a moment here. But they're located in Anatolia, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, these five regions. He says that Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. How did the readers become elect exiles? That's what Peter addresses in verse 2. And I want you to notice it. I'm going to read it one more time, and then I want you to make a comment on it. In other words, when I read this, does anything stick out to you? He says this. You have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. All right, as I read that description of how we became elect exiles, anything stick out to you? It had nothing to do with me. Okay, all right. So that's on the election side of things. Okay. What else? I'm fishing over here. Yeah, no, not a problem. I, I'm asking, was, is there anything that sticks out to you as, you as you look at verse 2? He breaks it into three parts, doesn't he? Hmm. Three is an interesting number in the Bible, isn't it? Ah, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, notice that Trinitarian reflection, right? So he begins with the Father, he goes to the Spirit, he goes to the Son. And, um, you know, for those who say, well, the you know, show me where the Trinity is in the Bible. It's like, well, just, just open it and, and I'll show it to you, whatever page you end up on. <laughs> right? I mean, it's, a, it's everywhere. And, uh, and here's just one reflection of that. He's saying that the way in which we became elect exiles, our identity was fashioned, was by the work of the triune God. And it begins with the work of the Father. So, notice first, the Father, what does He do? We've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. All right? So, Here's what I've done in the notes. You can see there were elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So what does foreknowledge mean? Well, we could just add the words together. And it simply means that I know something beforehand. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> I could say that I know beforehand that the Detroit Lions will win the Super Bowl next year. And of course, we all know that that's total baloney, right? I mean, hey, I'm not a gambling man, but maybe I could put some money on, on that not coming to true, right? <laughs> um, but it's not about 
knowing something beforehand. If I used it in reference to a person, maybe that's what we might mean. But when Scripture uses the term foreknowledge, it refers to God's plan that he knew beforehand because he planned it beforehand. In Acts 2.23, uh, I'll read that passage to you. There's a passage in which this same word is used in reference to God's eternal plan. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, starting in verse 22, just to get the context, Peter is speaking to the Israelites who have crucified Jesus. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which, you, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and for knowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. So notice this, the two things that are aligned with one another, that are paralleled, are God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. So it's not like God had a deliberate plan and then he had this knowledge of what would happen to, uh, what might happen to take place. Instead, he had a deliberate plan and therefore had knowledge of what would take place because he both knew what he desired and had the power to accomplish it. Coming back to 1 Peter then, when Peter says, you've been chosen or you've been elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This signifies that our, our coming to Christ, our coming to God, was according to God's plan. It was God who worked in us first to call us to himself. Now, we could get into the whole debate of uh, human responsibility and divine sovereignty here. And, you know, the, those are fun discussions. We don't have time to develop it here. I would simply say that the scripture does not, therefore, say that man is not culpable and responsible for his choices. And um, I would say in the sovereignty of God and in the wisdom of God, there's a way to resolve all of that. And I'm not privileged to all that. I mean, I, I just, you know, <clears throat> probably the most dense defense of God's sovereignty occurs in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 10 and 11 explain why these Jews who've not believed are culpable for their unbelief. And you say, well, how do you piece those two things together? But here's what Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 11. He says, oh, the wisdom and knowledge of God, whose ways and understanding are beyond our understanding. That's how he ends that section. And I, I have to just step back and I have to say, all right, true, true. I don't know how it all works together. Um, and I'm not sure that I'm going to know how it all works together. And, I, and I'm okay with that. And I think, I think we have to be okay with that. What we can't do is deny God's sovereignty. And what we can't do is deny, deny human responsibility. What we have to do is we have to come together and say, where the scripture emphasizes one of those points, let's emphasize that. And here, it's emphasizing the, or the, the sovereignty of God over our salvation. So at the end of the day, if you're a believer... Now, Paul says, we've been chosen by God, and it's a gift, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, none of us will be in heaven one day and say, oh, I did it. I made it. Hey, everybody, look over here. I'm, in, I'm here. Uh, we'll all be saying, he did it. He did it, right? Okay, so we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This situates, this contextualizes everything that happens in the letter. Because if, in fact, this is the case, and it is, then nothing happens by accident. Nothing is surprising to God. His foreknowledge brought you into the fold and allows all that happens to us to come to pass. Peter later refers to the foreknowledge of God the Father in chapter 1, verse 20. He says, Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. There, he's not referring to Jesus being chosen as though Jesus, God could have chosen somebody else. Rather, he's saying that he was chosen to do a special task before the world was ever formed. And that is, uh, theologians like to call this the 
the pact that God made in eternity, before creation was ever made, the Father, Son, and Spirit determined that they would save a people who would, after they create the world, would fall into sin and into all of that. But the point I bring up here is notice that this foreknowledge is from the foundation of the world. And Peter or Paul elsewhere tells us that our election in Ephesians 1 is from the foundation of the world. Of course, this means that we are elect or chosen into a family. And why do I say that? Because notice it says God the Father. Peter is going to stress the familial connection that we have with one another, but also with God in this whole letter. It's one of those foundation structures of the book of 1 Peter is we are family. All right, so the second person of the Trinity. So we've got God the Father giving us new birth. I'm sorry, God the Father for, uh, by his foreknowledge choosing us. Uh, notice the second thing, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So we are elect exiles through the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, some people get really, really nervous uh, by this because uh, it almost sounds like we're chosen by means of the work of the Spirit in us so that we have to be sanctified, we have to be made holy in order for us to be uh, elect. And I, I would say a few things about that. One, the book of Hebrews does say that there's a type of holiness with which if we do not have, we will not see the Lord. Conversion really changes people. It really changes people. So that if there is no change, then as Paul says to the Corinthian church, he says, test yourselves. See whether you are in the faith. Well, why does he say that to the Corinthians? Have you read the book of 1 Corinthians? <laughs> I mean, these people have a messed up life, right? And so he's saying, I'm not seeing the evidence. So you should look at your heart, okay? So there is a sense in which when we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the work of the Spirit changes us and makes us new. But I think the word here for sanctification is a word that we often use in reference to progressive sanctification, that I'm being made more and more holy, which is true. But the word is not only used that way in the New Testament. It's also used in a sense that I am made holy. Uh, sanctification is a, is a word, it, it, you know, if you took another word that's translated that way, we are holified, right? We are made holy. Uh, we are sanctified. Sanctification, saint. Uh, you know, the scripture loves to call the people of God saints. But do you know what saint means? Okay, yes, but it means holy one, sanctified one. And I know the Roman Catholic Church likes to limit that to their special, special people, but look at the scriptures. Scripture, yeah, scripture says that I'm a saint. You're a saint. Um, any who have trusted in Christ is a saint. Uh, because what does that mean? We are sanctified. Past tense. So here's the interesting thing about that word sanctified. Paul actually uses it in all three tenses. He says, we were sanctified. What does he mean by that? He means that when we were saved, we had a, uh, the Holy Spirit came to live in us. And we were set aside for holiness. We were sanctified. We are being sanctified. And by this, he means that progressive nature that because we have been changed internally, we are progressively becoming more and more who we already are. All right? And then he uses it in a third way in the future tense. And he says, we will be sanctified. And what does he mean by that? Well, all right, you can call me saint. But when I look in the mirror, <laughs> I'm like, uh, 
I'm still messed up. So we all know that despite the fact that we have been sanctified, that is, we've been given a down payment of the Spirit. I'm changed. I'm different. I'm not who I was. And even though I'm being sanctified, praise the Lord, I'm better today than I was a couple of years ago, and I, Lord willing, in a couple of years from now, I'll be better than I am today. Despite that, if I live to 100 years old and I get progressively better, I'm still not 100%. Might get up to 5% <laughs> by the time I'm 100. All right, so we're waiting for that third element. We will be sanctified, and that is the hope of being totally transformed, the sin nature being excised, cut away. So here when he says we are uh, chosen or elect exiles through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, I think what he's simply saying here is, that when we have been redeemed by God, the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of us. And He changes us. And you know what's interesting then to me? I, I, think, I think the work of the Father emphasizes elect, because He's the one who chose us. The work of the Spirit emphasizes exile, because He's the one who makes us different. He's the one who makes us weird, right, in terms of the world. All right, so we've talked about the Father, uh, for whom uh, I would say he's the ground or the, 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 the ultimate foundation of the reader's identity. The Spirit is the means of the reader's identity. How did we become what we are? And then the third thing is the work of the Son, and I would put this as the purpose of the reader's identity, the purpose of the reader's identity. So we are made elect exiles for, Peter says, or in the NIV here, to be obedient. Here's the reason why we were made elect exiles. So that we would be obedient to obey. Uh, what are we to obey? To be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. Now that's a really weird picture, isn't it? Sprinkled with his blood. Anybody have any idea what that even might mean? We're going to talk about it in just a second. Okay. It does, it refers back to that. And we're going to develop that in just one second. Let me read to you though, Notice that the various translations take this last clause in different ways. The NRSV puts it this way. You are chosen, elect exiles, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. NASB, to obey Jesus and be sprinkled with his blood. ESV, for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood. In the NIV, as we read, to be obedient to Jesus and sprinkled with his blood. So, I've translated this this way. You can see that under point D there. For obedience and blood sprinkling of the Son. I bring those two together for obedience and blood sprinkling. And why do I do that? Well, with your finger here, turn back with me to the book of Exodus. All right, Exodus chapter 24. This is Moses. He's received the law and now he's confirming the, um, the law among the people. The people are agreeing that they're going to obey the law. And here's what he says. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. This is Mount Sinai, by the way. Set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent <clears throat> young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings, sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood, put it in the bulls. The other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant 
read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. All right. So here's the Old Testament saints. Uh, They've been redeemed out of Israel or out out of Egypt. I'm sorry. They've been redeemed out of Egypt. And they're at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses has gone up. He's received the law. He's read the law to these people. They've all said, yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to obey. And so Moses writes out in a book the entirety of the law. He offers sacrifices that seal or start the covenant. This is what ratifies the covenant. Now, this was something that was done in the ancient Near East. In order for there to be a covenant done, uh, this was a costly exercise. It costs something. And this was one of the ways in which you represented that. Um, and, and so they sacrifice these animals. They take the blood and sprinkle it on the book of the covenant. They sprinkle it on the people. And there's this, essentially the lifeblood unites them to this law. They've said they're going to be obedient. They've been sprinkled with the blood. And the word picture seems to even suggest that their life is now bound to their obedience to this. Uh, because if, if they uh, do not obey the law, then they likewise will die. Now, coming back to the passage here in 1 Peter, I think this gives us a sense of what it means that God's people will be sprinkled with his blood with the blood of Jesus. I think that this, and I haven't talked to your pastor, so I don't know what he thinks, um, but I think that this indicates to us that the new covenant has been ratified or has been enacted. Because remember, what what was Moses doing? He was ratifying the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. That's how they established the covenant. But now a new covenant is being formed between God and people. And what what is the sacrifice that made that covenant possible? Not not, Not the blood of goats and bulls, but the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how significant that is. So now he's saying, here's the reason that God chose you, made you elect exile. He brought you into this relationship. You're chosen to be rejected by this world. But in this, you're chosen to be members of the new covenant. To be a part of the new people of God. Uh, He's going to develop that in chapter 2. That we are, in fact, a new people of God. Uh, He's not done with the old people, but we are certainly a new people of God in which the sacrifice of Christ has been done on our behalf. So you might ask the question, when then was I sprinkled with blood? When then was I brought into this covenant? And I think it's when we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. Part of repentance is my proclamation that I will obey. And a lot of people get nervous by that. They say, well, wait a second, wouldn't that be a work? And I would simply say, no, I don't think it is a work. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit in my life. You see, here's the bottom line. Does anyone repent without the Holy Spirit's work? No. So then if somebody says, I want to repent, is that their work attributable to them? Or is that the work of the Spirit that has moved in their hearts? And so when we come to this passage, our proclamation of obedience is a proclamation of the Holy Spirit who's changed us, who's been working in our heart to draw us so that we would make that proclamation of obedience. And we've been brought into the very new covenant of God in which if we had time to develop and we really don't, uh, we could look in, uh, in through the, throughout the whole Old Testament and we'd see a couple of particular passages in which there's great promise of a covenant that's coming in which all of our sins will be wiped away. 
Because remember, the Mosaic Covenant never made that promise. Didn't even come close. In fact, it told you, hey, you got to keep coming. Oh, you sinned again? All right, well, keep coming. <laughs> and, uh, and the scripture says, there's a once for all sacrifice of Christ. And that's what we've seen here. Okay, so there's the three prepositions where elect exiles through or because of the, for, the, the election of the Father, the choice of the Father, foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Here's how he did it. He gave us of his Spirit who sanctified us and is sanctifying us for the obedient blood sprinkling of the Lord Jesus Christ. In, or in other words, so that we would be members of the new covenant, so that he could pour out his grace upon us and make us representatives of him on this earth. All right, so, hey, look, that's just one verse. <laughs> that's verse number two. <laughs> Man, we're flying. We are just flying here. All right, any questions or comments on, uh, on that passage there? All right, so he then concludes it, uh, th this opening of the letter with these words, grace and peace be yours in abundance. And uh, this conclusion is, in is frequent to the uh, conclusion of an introduction to a letter. And you notice this exact phrase, grace and peace, is in Romans 1, Ephesians 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, Philemon 3. All right, let's look then at verses 3 to 5. Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So, Peter begins his letter, and this is the formal beginning of the letter because everything up to this point has been the introduction. All he's really done up to this point is introduced, here's who I am, I'm Peter, an apostle. Here's who you are. Your elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Asia Minor and who became this by means of the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Now he turns and he says, now, all right, <clears throat> what do I want to say to you? And he begins with this, these words. Praise God. God is to be praised. Why? Because he has given us new birth. Have you heard that phrase before? <laughs> New birth. Where's, where's Peter getting this from? Jesus, yeah, John 3. I uh, remember this conversation with Nicodemus. Uh, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, who's one of the rulers of the Jews. And he says to him, no, you're a leader of, of Israel and you don't know that you must be born again. And of course, Nicodemus uh, misunderstands in, in a comical way, though I tend to think it's almost, uh, I have a hard time believing that he's being literal there. I think he's just being hard-hearted there. But in any case, Jesus says you must be born again. <clears throat> uh, John 1 uh, talks about this same theme that uh, the people of God are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, but are born of God. And so there's a new birth that comes along as a result of God's choice. And I, you know, I think that the analogy of new birth gives greater emphasis to the doctrine of election. How many of you chose to be born? Uh, you didn't get a part of that. You didn't get a part to say in that, did you? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, none, of us, none of us had a choice in our birth. Uh, it just happened. And so all of a sudden, here we are. And in the same way, I think the analogy of the new birth is partly in that way. I mean, re remember when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, 
he uses that new, new birth analogy and then he says, uh, but the Spirit, he, he does what he wishes. He goes where he wishes. And it's like the wind. Because I can't see the wind. I can see a flag flying in the wind, so I can see what the wind is doing, but I can't see the wind. And have you ever been somewhere and uh, you really don't like the, what the wind is doing and you're just like, go the other way. And then all of a sudden it goes the other way and you're like, I don't know why it went the other way. This is kind of weird, but you know, and, and, and if you're sitting there, I mean, maybe one of you is a local newscaster and you know, you know weather patterns to a degree that I don't know. Uh, but, you know, as I think about the wind, I don't know why it's doing what it's doing. And even if I knew what, why it was doing what it's doing, I couldn't tell you what it's about to do, right? I don't think anybody can tell you that. So, John's, or Jesus says there, and John repeats it, uh, that's how the Spirit is. He blows where he wishes. And, and no man knows what he's going to do. And, and that's, that's a great frustration for many, right? Uh, you know, as a preacher of the Word, I, I can testify to this. There have been times where I've preached a message uh, in fact, I'll just use one particular illustration. I, I was asked to preach in a prison once. It was actually a juvenile uh, correction facility. So I was asked to preach there. And, uh, and so I went and I preached. And I chose uh, a passage that I knew well. And, and uh, praise the Lord, the, the response was incredible. And I, I was just so thankful. And then a long time later... I was invited back to that same place and most likely totally different kids at this point. And so I go and I preach the same message and it was a total flop. Did, 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 I, did my preaching get worse? Maybe. <laughs> I'm not, hey, listen, I'm not saying I'm a great preacher, but you know, if, if I saw some, some fruit and I thought, man, that, that was great. So I thought, well, you know, this, this, the Lord blessed the last time, so I'll preach that same message. I came, I prepared, and I don't know that you could evaluate from an external perspective and say, you know, that one was a good one, but, you know, the way you use your intonation and, you know, your illustration just was a little off point. I, I'm not sure that that's really what I can pinpoint as what was different. And uh, maybe... Maybe I wasn't praying as effectively then. For, I, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is that, yeah, and all I know is that, uh, you know, it seemed like the Lord was really working, and, and at this point, He wasn't, but I'm not in control of that. So, here then, the analogy of the new birth, I think, emphasizes this point He's already made. And, and, and of course, if if I'm responsible for my new birth, if I'm responsible for my election, my choice, my, my choice in God, if I'm responsible for all that, then it does seem like a really weird thing that Paul says, let's praise God that he gave us new birth. He was like, well, I mean, I kind of deserved it. You know, I, he should have given it to me because I did what was necessary for it. But instead, Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who gave us new birth. Because notice why he does it, or according to what he does it. Notice that second line, in his great mercy, he gave his new birth. Not just in his mercy, but in his great mercy. Uh, we talk a lot about grace. Grace is receiving what we don't deserve. And that's a beautiful thing. Mercy is related, but slightly different. Mercy is not receiving what I do deserve. And so in God's great mercy, he didn't give me what I deserved. Instead, he gave me something far beyond and better than what I ever deserved. And it was because of his great mercy. Now, unfortunately, uh, that does bring us to the time in which we are finished today. And uh, so I got through a couple of pages, I, you know. Uh, the next time we come together, what I'm, uh, I'm not going to be here um, because I'm going to be down in Florida. And uh, I just, I feel horrible about that. Uh, 
So, <laughs> but there will be a substitute teacher coming, Dr. Ryan Meyer. He's one of my colleagues at uh, DBTS, and I think you'll really enjoy him. He knows First Peter pretty well. Um, and so he's going to be coming and he'll finish this section and I'll task him with just catching up. And then, uh, and if he doesn't, well, you know, I mean, that's, that's a problem. So, uh, but no, I'll, um, I'll tell him where we left off and uh, he can pick up here and I think he'll do a fantastic job. And then Lord willing, I'll meet you here the following time. So we will meet next time, uh, but I won't be here. Thank you for your time.